Before we start, well, welcome again, if you missed my first one. Um, welcome to Campus House. My name is Ralph. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, before I get into the message at all, I just want to ask you a favor. Um, there, there is something about our expectations that shape how we actually receive things. Um, and so if I just start by saying this is going to be really good, um, and then you believe it, then maybe it will, <laughs> will be. Um, but also, I, I mean, this is like, this feels like the, maybe the, the, the most, I don't know, the best thing I've, I've come up with, <laughs> which, uh, that's not what I meant to say, but that, that's true. Um, it just, it feels like there is something here for everyone, and the reason it feels powerful is because it was powerful for me. Um, so, if nothing else, I had a, a great time this week um, writing this sermon, but if you could just maybe open up and see, Lord, I'm anticipating that there's something here for me today, um, and just see what happens, um, and I, I believe he'll meet you in that in some way. Um, so, we are in a series called Backstory, and uh, we go through the Psalms, examining the context uh, they're written in and asking the Lord what these things um, they have any, anything to say to us. Um, and the reason I, I really love the way we do this is, I mean, the reason I love going through the Psalms themselves is because they're so different than anything else we really find in Scripture. It's not just, it's not just narrative. It's not just exposition. It's a, it's a book of songs. And I think we forget that that's like how we come at it. It is a book of the songs of the generations of the people of God what are they singing as they're connecting to God or maybe not? What are they singing in, in good times, in hard times, in nothing times? These are the songs. And uh, songs shape generations, right? So you think about all the great songs of, of history. You've got Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus. You get uh, Beethoven's Ninth, and we're singing Ode to Joy. Move a little more recently in the 30s, you get this kind of in this pivotal moment of combating racism. You get Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit, or you have John Lennon singing Imagine. All these, all these moments in history, and it, it's like a song. It doesn't just come out of the generation. It does. It like reflects them, but then it goes back in and it shapes it. Not just the art, not just the music, but actually the anthropology. It, it changes people. And so when we come to this psalm, we want to see, yeah, it, re it reveals stuff about them, but then it also goes back into the culture and it shapes it. But Psalm 107 is, it is like a masterpiece, right? So this is a big psalm. Um, so imagine, this is the best analogy I could come up with. It's pretty poor, but um, imagine if Chris Martin from Coldplay, Bono from U2, Stevie Wonder, Adele, maybe Kanye, throw Marcus Mumford and Yo-Yo Ma, and they all get into a room, and they write a song. Now, there is no possible scenario that would keep us from immediately grabbing our phones and demanding that Google tell us why that happened, right? Like, why did they write the song? Because you know it's going to be huge, even if it's terrible, right? I mean, Kanye wrote Poop to Scoop, and we think it's amazing, right? Like... <laughs> Whatever these people are doing, there's, there's got to be a reason. We've got to know the backstory. So when, uh, yeah, I know, I'm sorry. But when we come to Psalm 107, it is written in this pivotal time in the life of Israel. And it's actually, we'll get into this later, but it is actually one of the most, like, complex and intricate psalms. So we, we should come to this with the same thing we'd come to that supergroup. What, what's the backstory? How did this happen and so the, the actual backstory of this psalm spans 28 generations, um, so buckle up. Um, but Psalm 107 happens kind of right in the middle of that time. So I just want to give us a, a brief backstory to the backstory, um, just to help us feel kind of where Israel is at when this happens. Briefly, here is a timeline of the backstory of Israel. So we've got King David and King Solomon around the 1,000 B.C. year mark. And this is the height of Israel, right? This is, they are making it, right? There's no other time, but people 
are coming to see this temple that Solomon built, right? They're coming there just, just to see it. This doesn't happen at all for Israel, right? Israel's the, the small, they're the underdog. But this is the moment when they're not. They're on top here. But then Solomon dies, and the kingdom divides around 931 B.C. They split into two kingdoms, the wicked northern kingdom and the slightly less wicked uh, southern kingdom, which comes to be known as Judah. And uh, the northern kingdom, after years and years of idolatry and injustice and wicked kings, um, Israel is captured by the Assyrians, and they are led into captivity, and we don't hear from them again. So, rough break. And then, around 620 B.C., 400 years after David was king, Jeremiah the prophet comes on the scene, and he begins to prophetically call Judah, right, this, this last remnant of God's chosen people. He's like, if you guys don't come back to the covenant, if you don't fix this, you are going to follow the same fate as your northern brothers. And so we get a, a, a chapter like Jeremiah 25. I've spoken persistently to you, but you've not listened. And though the Lord persistently sent you all his servants and prophets, you've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear when they said, Turn now, every one of you, from your evil and wicked doings, and you'll remain upon the land the Lord's given you and your ancestors from old and forever. Do not go after other gods. Do not serve them and worship them. Don't provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And then later, Jeremiah prophesies that if Israel doesn't repent of their ways, Babylon is going to come and destroy their land, pillage their city, and it's going to hold them captive for 70 years. But of course, they don't listen, and eventually, they go into exile. Jerusalem's taken under siege, the temple's destroyed, and those who remained alive were taken captive, dragged to the foreign land of Babylon. And this is one of the most profound moments for the Israelite people. This is where, actually, the, the book of Chronicles gets written after this time of exile. It's the same kind of timeline as First and Second Kings. You always wonder why they're like, why am I reading the same story twice in a row? It's because First Kings was written when they're at their height. They're, they're in charge. They're victorious. They want to portray themselves that way. But then we get to the Chronicles narrative, and some of these stories, they take on a different flavor because right? they're written from this place of humil humility and brokenness. And then it comes to affect how they tell time. If you look at the opening of Matthew's gospel, which is primarily written to a Jewish audience, he tells time like this, 14 generations from Abraham to David. So Abraham, the founding of the covenant, and then David, the, the height of Israel, and then 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and then 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Right, So this is like how they're telling time now. So you've got the, the pivotal mo moment when they're created as a nation, as a people of God, and then you've got David, this is height of the climax, and then exile is on par with that. So this is huge. And so now in this place of exile, they remember the promises of Jeremiah. Before there were warnings. If you don't turn back, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. But now that they're in exile, 70 years. God's going to rescue us in 70 years. And this, this time of terror and doubt and darkness is the context for that famous verse we know so well. Jeremiah 29, 11, right on your sneakers and your eye patches. Uh, what do you call it? Not an eye patch. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah 29, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back from captivity. I'll gather you from all nations and places where I've banished you, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And so the remnant of Israel are waiting in exile with this singular hope. It's all they have. God will come to the rescue, gathering them from all corners of the world, restoring them to their land, rebuilding their temple, beginning his new kingdom with them at the center again. 
sure enough, 536 BC, through the benevolence and the diplomacy of a new Babylonian ruler named Cyrus, God provides a way for Israel to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. So this thing they've been aching for for 70 years, maybe, maybe God will do this thing. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which were actually basically one book, and they, they split it up into two, but it's, one, it's this one story, and it's telling this moment when Israel comes back to the land and rebuilds their temple, rebuilds the city walls. So here we go, Ezra chapter 3, verse 8. In the second year after the arrival at the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to have the oversight of the work on the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his kin, and Cadmiel and his sons, Binuai and Hodaviah, along with the sons of Hanadad, fun stuff. The, the Levites, the sons and kin t- together took charge of the workers in the house of God. Here we come to this, this powerful moment. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals according to the directions of King David. And they sang responsively, praising, giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people respond with a great shout when they praise the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord were laid. And this is the moment, the ethos, the atmosphere in which Psalm 107 is written. So the whole idea behind Psalm 107 is this moment when everything that was certainly too good to be true, too, too much to hope for, it's in the process of becoming. Can, can you feel that, right? This is, this is a long story, and, and we're coming at this moment when there's, there's not much to be hoped for, but the only thing to hope for is like maybe coming. The light is, is right at the tip of the horizon, and that's where we find Israel in this psalm. So let's hold on to this history, this roller coaster of Israel's life. We're going to look at Psalm 107, and then we'll come back to the story and see how it ends. Israel is in this, uh, this liminal space between everything they've ever feared and the only thing that could make it right. And they're right in between. It's them finally getting to re- return home. It's the hope that maybe God is still on their side. And maybe God in the end really is good, and he does keep his promises. But we don't know yet, so. Psalm 107 happens before they find out. So if we actually look at Psalm 107, that's the backstory. Psalm 107 itself is a masterpiece. It's raw, it's pure, it's brilliant poetry. It's complex, formulated, intentional in every word. The writer is so versed in scripture, like every phrase calls to mind some passage in the history of Israel. The great uh, 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he, he said that if any of the great ancient poets had written this, it would be their masterpiece. It would be their greatest work. And it's just tucked right in our, in our Bible, right in the middle. Forget that sometimes. So we're going to go through this a lot faster than I want, um, but I encourage you, um, take some notes, and then go back and read it this week. Kind of sit in it. It's, it is a brilliant work of art. And we're going to, as we go through this today, I want to do it just a little bit differently, um, just to help keep us engaged, but also kind of to follow the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, part, of, part of their story, um, there's this little revival moment when uh, they, they find the book of the law and they, they decide that when they, they're going to stand and have this festival and every time they open the book of the law, everyone stands. And so we're going to read this psalm in kind of chunks and each time, if you're able-bodied and your legs work and you're comfortable doing it, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read it. I'll just read it, but you can follow along. It'll be on the screen or you can flip to your Bible. It'll be in Psalm 107. So let's stand uh, and we're going to the opening verses of Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, those he redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. You can have a seat. So if you remember from the passage in Ezra, this is the same core song sung in verse 11. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His love endures forever. That's the moment when this psalm is happening. And verse 3, it sets up the rest of the psalm in a brilliant way. And gather them from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. It seems like just a simple little thing. He's just naming cardinal directions. But what the writer is communicating is that God is gathering his people from everywhere just like Jeremiah prophesied, right? This is straight from Jeremiah. And each direction also carries a deeply symbolic representation of the different ways that God is rescuing people, the different ways Israel has suffered or is in need. And so this is my creative rendering of what that psalm is. There's some cards on your, on your seat. You've got them there too. But this, this little verse carries the rest of the psalm and it sets it up. And so there are gonna be four uh, moments in this psalm. We call them stanzas. And each stanza represents a direction God is gathering his people, but also the symbolic way that the people of God need him to intervene. The east represents desert wanderings. The west is a place of darkness and bondage. The north is the land of idolatry and the suffering of guilt. And, and the south which is, you know, it's translated south, and the Hebrew word for south is yamin, and uh, because it seems that's what the writer's trying to say, right? North, or east, west, north, and yep, yamin is what you would think, um, but the word is actually yam, which if you look at it, they, they're pretty similar, um, pretty similar words, and it's a, it's a play on words. It's the word for sea, and so with this tiny little way, this tiny little word, play, uh, the writer says, God's gathering people from everywhere, from the east and the west and the north and the south. But then he's also, he's gathering them from the desert, from darkness, from idolatry, and from the sea. It's kind of nerdy, but I, I really, I find that really cool. And so the next four stanza, stanzas unpack each of these four ideas. What's more, each of these stanzas follow a similar five-step pattern. So if you're the kind of person who takes notes and you want to go back and read the psalm again, you can kind of follow how this works out. I'm not going to do a big chart because um, I really want to, I want to dig into the meat of it. But uh, this is what happens. The people, they, they share their plight. This is what's wrong. And then they cry out, God, deliver us. And then God delivers. And then the people give thanks. And then you see their new situation. And that's, each of these stanzas is exactly that pattern. So let's dive in. Let's stand and see, and uh, I'll just read it. You guys can, I mean, if you want to say it out loud, go for it. But uh, this is Psalm 107, starting in verse 4, the east. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to an inhabited town. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way until they reached an inhabited town. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. For he satisfies the thirsty, and the hungry he fills with good things. You can have a seat. So God is rescuing his people from the east. He's rescuing them from a desert wasteland, wandering aimlessly, thirsty, tired, hungry, and lost. The desert is a symbol of deprivation and want and spiritual dryness. Is that anybody in here? Are you in that place where you, you don't see a way forward? Everything feels dry. You feel pretty alone. And your most constant companion is apathy. 
Well, this also calls to mind Israel's story, much of it. You have the 40 years wandering in the desert, waiting for the promised land. It's also a call to the desert exile, like we see in Isaiah 49, Jeremiah 31. We see Israel in this desert land of exile. But the desert is also the place where God tends to lead his people when he's in the process of bringing restoration. So if you look at a passage like Hosea 2, Therefore, I will now allure her and bring her into the wilderness. I'll speak tenderly to her. From there, I'll give her her vineyards and make the gates of hell a door of hope. There she shall respond as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. The desert land for Israel was this, this season right before God shows up. But God is actually there the whole time. And so those in this desert land, they call out to the Lord, and he delivered them. He delivered them by showing them the straight path. He's the God who knows the way out of the seasons of dryness, the wandering, the confusion. He satisfies the thirsty, and he fills the hungry with good things. He delivers those from the desert of the east. So let's stand and read the next stanza. This is verse 10, the west. Some sat in the darkness and in gloom, prisoners in misery and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Their hearts were bowed down with hard labor. They fell down with no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and gloom, and he broke their bonds asunder. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. For he shatters the doors of bronze and he cuts into the bars of iron. You can have a seat. So the West, God is rescuing the people from the West, from darkness, oppression, rebellion, and bondage. For Israel, as for us, the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. And so the west was this place of darkness. The sun is setting. It's the beginning of night. It's also sometimes the gloom of silence from the Lord. It's a place of brokenness and despair, bondage of sin. Does that resonate at all with any of you? Is there a struggle with sin you can't get past? Temptation too strong, or has it just been so long since you heard God talking? Maybe you're not sure he really did. This language resonates deeply with Job when he says, aren't my few days coming to an end? Just look away. I need to brighten up before I go and I don't return to a land of deepest darkness a land whose light is like gloom, utter darkness and confusion, such that light shines like the dark. But to those lost in darkness, God is the light. Israel cried out to the Lord and he saved them. He brought them from darkness and he broke their bonds asunder. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. He rescues his people from the West. Let's stand to read the next stanza. The North, starting in verse 17. Some were sick through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities endured affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He delivered them from destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. And let them offer thanksgiving sacrifices and tell of his deeds with songs of joy. Amen. God is rescuing his people from the north, from idolatry, from self-destruction, from guilt. The word for north is this word siphon, which is 
the name of a mountain to the north of Israel. And it was the dwelling place of the, the god Baal, this foreign idol. And so the north becomes the symbol for the allure of idolatry, which is the constant companion and the consistent failure of Israel. This is how they fall every time. And what's really interesting about this verse is all of the verbs are, are reflexive, right? So they're, it's like they're doing it to themselves. And some scholars think that the author is trying to convey that Israel is in this place of deep guilt. They know they messed up. And they're not sure what to do, so they're, they're fasting. They're, they're doing everything they can think of to, to deprive themselves in this, this hunger of guilt. They're punishing their way back to God. Can you feel that? Have you gone too far? Is there some sin in your life that's certainly too much for God to look past? So much pain, self-loathing, self-hatred, that harming yourself is the only way to release it. Maybe it's physical harm, or maybe you won't let yourself be loved in any relationship because you don't deserve it. If only they knew. You don't know what to feel, but you know it feels like death. But notice what happens when the people call out to God. They're refusing food because they think, if I just deprive myself, that's what I deserve. God's response is to throw them a feast. He heals them. He delivers them. And this, this last phrase there, it, it's, it's translated as a thanksgiving sacrifice. But it's this word todah, which calls to mind Leviticus 3 and 7, where they have this thanksgiving feast with the community. So to those burdened by the weight of guilt and their sin and their, their struggles, God forgives and he heals and he invites them to feast. God rescues them from the guilt of the north. Let's stand and read the fourth stanza. The sea. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. But their courage melted away in their calamity. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. God is rescuing his people from the sea, from the chaos and destruction and the unknown. Israel predominantly is a landlocked nation. And so they were rightfully terrified of the sea. It was unknown, violent, completely out of their control. And for them, it, kept to, it came to represent all the forces of evil and injustice and chaos. Anything that was out of Israel's hands, the sea terrified them. Can you relate to this one? Is your life chaos? Are you so in over your head that you don't remember the last time you came up for air? Does your life feel out of control? Are you just along for the ride, but you're more like being kidnapped in the back of a trunk? But Israel, at their wit's end, they've got nothing left to contribute. They cry out to the Lord. And he calms the sea. 
He brings peace. He brings quiet. He carries the ship back to a safe haven. Praise God, the Lord of the storm. He rescues them from the sea. So we've got one, one last little stanza. Let's stand. This is just a recap and a conclusion of the psalm. I'm not going to unpack it or explain it, but notice if you can see the author. He repeats all the themes that he just went through. So this is Psalm 107, starting in verse 33. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into salty waste because of the wickedness of its inhabitants. But he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry live, and they establish a town to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their cattle decrease. When they were diminished and brought low through the oppression, trouble, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless ways. But he raises up the needy out of distress, and he makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness stops its mouth. Let those who are wise give heed to these things and consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So that's Psalm 107. Wasn't that fun? Israel finally returning to build their temple in their homeland. And they're giving thanks to God because he's gathering people from, from the east and the west and the north and the south, from the desert and the darkness and, and the weight of guilt and from the chaos of the sea. They're going to come back and they're going to build the temple. He's going to start his new kingdom here, just like the prophecies, and he's, he's going to make it all right. That is unfortunately not where the story ends. So, backstory part two. I'm going to finish the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'm just going to do it in kind of two parts. There are really two big things to pull from this narrative. And the first one is revival. During the exile, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, they, and Daniel and the, these other prophets begin amassing this huge amount of this, this compilation of glimpses at a new thing God's doing. Daniel 2 puts it like this. In those days, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It'll break all these other kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it shall stand forever. Isaiah 11. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. They won't hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Ezekiel 37, I love this passage. I'll take the people from, from the nations among which they have gone and I'll gather them from every quarter. I'll bring them to their own land. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. They and their children's children's children shall live there forever and my servant David shall be their prince forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I'll bless them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary, my dwelling place among them forever. So there is this promise of a new kingdom that will come when Israel returns to their homeland. It's the thing God has been promising to do since Abraham. But the rebellion of the people of Israel their unfaithfulness to the, co to, the, to the covenant and their idolatry and injustice has kept this, this awesome vision of the kingdom at bay. But now there's a hope that maybe this actually could happen. And as a result, in this story of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see glimpses of revival among the people of Judah. It begs the question, could this be when God does the thing? really looks like it has. Real revival is taking place. Ezra 1 through 6, this is what we were just in. The paths open for Israel to return to their homeland, rebuild the temple again, just like the prophecies. 
And then in Ezra 9, the, the people rededicate their lives to following the law of God. In Nehemiah 2 through 7, they rebuild the city walls. And in chapters 8 through 10, the walls are rededicated. They have this huge festival. They stand and they read the word of God like it's so fun to do. And then old practices are rebirthed and it looks like revival. But this comes to the next conclusion. It, it didn't last. It didn't last. So even if we pick up where we left off right before Psalm 107, in Ezra chapter 3, they're celebrating the building of the temple. They sing, Psalm 107, God is doing the thing. We jump in at verse 11. And they sang responsively, praising, giving thanks to the Lord. He's good. His steadfast love endures forever. And the people resto- responded with a great shout because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the family, old people who saw the first one, saw the first house on its foundations, they wept with a loud voice when they saw this house. And the other ones, they shouted for joy, so they couldn't distinguish the sound of the, the joy from the sound of people's weeping. And it was so loud that you could hear it from far away. So rebuilding the temple, it was like part of the prophecy, right? When they rebuild the temple, that's going to be the start of the, the new kingdom. And but that when they laid the foundation, everyone who saw the old one, this can't be it. This can't be the new thing. This isn't even as good as the old thing. And then later on in Ezra, although the people rededicate their lives, as soon as Ezra leaves, the leaders revert back to their old ways. Nehemiah 5, the direct commands of the covenant are being abused again. And then chapters 12 to 13 They have this big revival in the festival and the completion of the wall, but the whole story ends in Nehemiah 13. He he went away on a business trip and he comes back and he finds the temple neglected, the covenant broken, and the last few verses we find Nehemiah so angry, he's cursing, he's beating people, he's pulling out their hair. This is not fulfillment. The whole project, it didn't work again. So what is the point of this, right? If, if Psalm 107 was written because the Israelites believed that finally God was going to bring all people from every corner of the earth and every situation back into the goodness of his love, and he was going to do it through rebuilding the temple, and, and then that was going to become the epicenter of God's new kingdom, just like the prophet said, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. But if this failed, what is the point of the story? What is the point of Psalm 107? Why would God allow them to go through this journey? Why did he prompt Ezra and Nehemiah to write it into Scripture? So there are two things. The first one is that God needed to highlight the real problem. And the problem before exile and the problem after exile, for Israel, it's the same problem. The hearts of the Israelites were hard. Even when it looks like a couple good leaders could pull them out and turn them back to God, they fail. God couldn't start the new kingdom there. The deepest problem, the problem of the heart had not been remedied. And so while they may not be physical exiles anymore, they're back on their land, spiritually they're still in exile. Second thing is that God needed to deconstruct Israel's idea about the temple. For the Israelites, the temple represented to them their entire identity, their way of life, their standing with God. To them, without a temple, they would always be exiles. For them, God's promise was unbreakably tied to the land, to the physical places. And to say, this is for them. They are God's chosen nation. But if they don't have a land, they're not a nation. But when the temple is rebuilt, it becomes clear, didn't fix the problem. And all along, God wanted to show his people that the point of the temple was that God longed to be with his people. Not restricted just to one building, but to be like what Joel prophesied in Joel 2. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Or Jeremiah in chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt, covenant they broke, though I loved them like a husband. But this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it right on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. No longer will you teach your neighbor saying, hey, you should know the Lord because everyone will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, I will forgive their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. So if this highlighted the real problem and then it showed them that the temple was actually about something else, then what is this? What is the fulfillment of it? I'm glad you asked because uh, it points to Jesus, right? We're in church, so we got to bring it around. In Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, through defeating the powers of darkness, we have new life. And so in Christ, we actually have new hearts. He does what Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 36. He gives us a new heart. He takes out the stony one and he gives us one of flesh. It's real. It's living. Only through Jesus can the real problem get fixed. We're so in bondage to sin and death, the way of life we pursue apart from Jesus, it just leads to death. Even like, okay, like I sometimes have a problem when people set this up and they're like, yeah, people are just bad. It's like, no. Like, look at, look at the campus, right? There are people doing good things. Like, they're good people. Sometimes embarrassingly, right? Like, why we have a society that can do great things, sometimes embarrassingly more than what we see coming from some churches. But at the same time, this good society is anxious and broken and suicidal and empty because if, that, if doing those good things is just to build up your self-esteem and be a good person, I can't give myself life. And if I worship myself, there's no, there's no life there. We self-implode. It's like a black hole. You just fold in on yourself. can't do our way out of a bad heart. We need a new one, and Jesus offers it freely. And secondly, Jesus is the new temple. There is this incredible line that Jesus speaks at the beginning of John's gospel. I, I love the gospels because they just, Jesus is just cool, right? He's, the beginning of John's gospel, he's, uh, he just finishes cleansing the temple, and, and then he just likes to freak people out a little bit. Um, and he goes, uh, in three days, uh, or I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And people start freaking out. But then verse 21 says this, but Jesus was speaking about his body. And then after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the temple, right? The point of the temple was God with us. Well, what is the name that Micah and Matthew and Isaiah tell us Jesus is called? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God with us. Come to show us God's love, to break the bondage of sin, to begin his new kingdom to include us into his life. Jesus is God with us. He's the new temple. And so the backstory for Psalm 107 is this 28 generations from, well, longer, but if we go from David to the exile to the Messiah, it's 28 generations long. And the point of this is that Psalm 107, they had no idea how it was that God was gonna bring about the things they were singing. But they had that hope. So what does Psalm 107 have for us today? Is it just a powerful piece of historical poetry? Is it just part of the story of how God's people got excited about the wrong thing? Or do we have the privilege of reading it from this side of history where we can look back and see they were singing about something that was true. And somehow the, the mysterious method that God inspires Scripture, it points us to Jesus. And so we're running low on time, but I just I want to go back through Psalm 107 really quick and read it from the privilege of this 
being on this side of the cross, we get to see that Jesus fulfills all of this. So if we start in the east, to the people wandering in the desert, lost, needy, and deprived, Jesus is the way. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you know me, you know the Father. And from now on, if you've seen me, you know him. You have seen him. John 10, my sheep, they know my voice. They know me. They follow me. They follow my way. If you are lost, Jesus is the way. And to the West, to the people in bondage to darkness, stuck in the blindness of temptation, condemned in the silence of sin, Jesus is the light. Isaiah 42, speaking of the Messiah to come, says he will be a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon all those who sit in darkness. John 8, 12, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will never be in darkness. You will have the light of life. to the south, to the sea, to all those overwhelmed by chaos, unable to control or change the course of your life, to those who have nothing left to do but cry out for help. Jesus is Lord of the storm. It's crazy. In Mark 4, we, ha- we find this powerful story that most certainly anyone who was hearing this gospel story shared. Psalm 107, boom, right in their minds. Mark chapter 4, on that day when evening came, he said to him, let's go across the other side. And leaving the crowds, they took him in a boat. But a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him up and they said, teacher, do you not care that we are dying out here? He woke up and rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said, and why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great sense of awe, and they said to another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is Lord of the storm. And to the north. To those dying in the hunger and the weight of guilt, stuck in an endless loop of sin and guilt and regret and self-loathing. Jesus is the bread of life. And so you no longer need to harm yourself because Jesus took every pain, every suffering on him. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. He bore the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And if you're still hungry for more, in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And the bread of life calls us to feast. So we're gonna feast together. We're gonna take communion. So if you're helping that, go ahead, pass it out. Don't wait for me. Um, and we're, hold on to it. We're gonna take it together. And as they pass that out, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna repeat these invitations from Psalm 107. So just, could you receive that? The East is calling to you. Are you wandering in the desert? Jesus is the way. The West whispers in the darkness, Jesus is the light. He's the Messiah come to open the eyes of the blind and set free those in bondage. In the South Sea, it roars beside you. It says, are you overwhelmed by chaos and the storms of life? Well, Jesus is Lord of the, sl- of the storm. He's not worried. He's asleep in the boat, and he invites you to rest. And the north wind, it calls out. Are you dying under the weight of your guilt? You don't need to punish yourself any longer. Jesus took every pain on himself and he did it for you so you wouldn't have to. Are you starving for something to sustain you? 
Jesus is the bread of life. He will never spoil. He will never fade. Whoever comes to him will never go hungry. Whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. So let's come to him now. Let's take the bread. Let's eat it, remembering the body of Jesus broken for you. And take the cup of the new covenant, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of new life. To end today, um, we're not gonna we're not gonna sing a song, but I, w- I still want us to participate in the psalm. So uh, I want us to commit our lives to whatever this response is kind of bringing out. So I, I want to invite you. Uh, we're gonna pray a prayer together. Um, it's just gonna be based on on this psalm. We're gonna just pray those invitations back. And if you've never given your life to Christ, this is a great time to do it. And. Uh, if it is, we'd love to talk to you afterward. This is not something you, you do on your own, right? We want to talk about how this moves us into a life of committed discipleship with Jesus. And for everyone else, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this prayer is a breath of fresh air to remind our whole being what the point of this is, right? Our life is committed to Christ. So, uh, some of you have cards. I have a few extras. Guys, bigger crowd than I was expecting today. Um, but I, I want to encourage you, just take that with you. And if you want to pray it throughout this week, or you just pray it in the morning or before you go to bed or just tuck it in your Bible or your pocket or something, uh, just to have this, this moment in your day where you're saying, my life is yours. I want to commit my life to you. So can we stand and we're going to, pray this together. I'm going to read the first line, and then we'll all respond together. Though often I wander and lose my way with nowhere to turn, Jesus, you are the way, and I commit my life to following you in trust. Though sin and death are all around, and I can't escape on my own, Jesus, you are the light. I believe that you defeated death and darkness, so I no longer live as if they've won. I commit my time to bringing your light to the world around me. Though I'm guilty of worshiping things other than you, and I can't stop it on my own, Jesus, you have forgiven my sin on the cross, and you have given me a new heart, free to worship you. I commit my abilities to worship you in joy. Though the chaos of life threatens to overwhelm me in anxiety, fear, and loneliness, Jesus, you are Lord of the storm. You're not worried, and you invite me into your calm. So I join you in bringing peace to all your creation. Go to grace, how-